right, let's go to the scriptures together for a little while as we think about the next line in the Apostles' Creed for our attention tonight. That being this confession about the work of Christ for our redemption, this line, on the third day he rose again. Hence, our focus is going to be on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We just sang about that. And um, I, have, I have little doubt that this is a doctrine of the Christian faith that most of you will be much more acquainted with already than uh, the topic for last week. Uh, that, that would be Jesus' descent to the dead. We're still, and if you missed that, uh, if it's not already, it'll soon be up on our podcast and you can catch that. We're still in a, in a five-week consideration uh, on the work of Christ. We began with the person of Christ, um, moving to the work of Christ for our salvation. Five weeks on the work that is already accomplished for us, that, that being his incarnation. That's part of, I mean, everything that Jesus did, it wasn't just the things that Jesus did at the end of his life that was for us and for our salvation. Everything about his coming was for our salvation. So it be, his work of salvation began with his incarnation, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, uh, to moving to his suffering and the cross and his descent to the dead, and tonight his resurrection from the dead on the third day, and then next week his ascension to the right hand of God the Father, um, interceding for his people. That is work of redemption that is already done and is ongoing and then we'll finish our consideration about the work of Christ, thinking about that aspect of his saving work still to come, which is his return, his, his second coming. He, w- w- he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Still a saving work to come. Still a saving work to come. You think, how, what, what, what kind of saving do we still need that Jesus didn't finish at his first coming? What, what kind of saving is, are we still waiting on at his second coming? Well, it's the... We are saved, because of his first coming, we are saved already now from the penalty of sin. We are as fully and finally forgiven and justified today as we ever will be for all eternity. We are already now saved from the power of sin. We don't always walk in that victory. We're being sanctified. We're not, we're not, but we, but because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and we are technically saved from the power of sin if we, we have the power and the ability every moment of our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in victory over sin. But it won't be until that day when he comes again that we will be f- saved fully and finally from the very presence of sin. But just consider that, the presence of sin in our own hearts. There will not be, there will not be a moment in your heart tempting you to any kind of sinful thought or word, or action. You will always do what you should. You will never do what you shouldn't, and you will want to do it. I mean, I cannot imagine every moment of my life being like that. Not only will we be free from the very presence of sin in our own, in our own hearts, but all around us. There will be no sinful environment around us. Um, I like that image at the end of Revelation where it ta- it's describing... Uh, this heavenly place for us forever, and it's de- described as a city, and, and it's, its gates are never shut. That's the one way it describes it. It's like there's complete safety there. There's, complete, there's no wicked thing there. Gates are always open. Uh, wow. That's a day certain to come 
Not only because it's promised in the New Testament, but because the certainty of that day coming commenced with his resurrection from the dead. Um, And we're going to think about that together tonight. Like I said, this is a doctrine that many, if not most of you, are familiar with. If you've been in our college ministry for any time, we've had plenty of occasions. You've had plenty of occasions to hear me talk about the resurrection. So there's a good chance... If that's you, if you've been in our college ministry a while and you've been here for Easter's and things like that, yeah, I may not. Chance I, I may not say anything that you haven't heard before. But as we often say, that's a good place to be when we can hear the truths of our faith reinforced again and again and again. What a grace gift of God to us. So, to begin uh, tonight to focus our thoughts about the resurrection, I want us to begin. Take your Bible and find Colossians chapter one. Colossians chapter one. There are so, so many passages we could turn to uh, as a guide for our thoughts. Any of the gospel accounts, I almost took us to Matthew 28 just to look at a, one of the gospel accounts. 1 Corinthians 15 is perhaps the most extended treatment of the resurrection in the whole Bible. It's a whole chapter dedicated to the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, and that's the chapter in which Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. That's a shocking statement. Or we could have gone to Romans 4.25, that Jesus was delivered over for our transgressions and he was raised for our justification. We could have gone to any of the passages in the book of Acts when Peter and John were preaching on the resurrection, or Paul was preaching on the resurrection in the Areopagus in, in, in Athens, and, and Peter, on the day of Pentecost, preaching on the, the resurrection, and he concludes that, therefore, on the basis of this resurrection, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So what are you going to do with him? There's so many passages we could, we could turn to, but this passage uh, I thought we would land on in Colossians chapter 1, uh, and uh, I think we can get some good out of it. We're going to read verses 15 through 20. We'll focus particularly on the last three verses, 18, 19, and 20, but we'll read beginning in verse 15 for just a little bit of context. All right, Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says beginning in verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1, He, that is Jesus Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the church, the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And we ask your help. To, to do what you would have to do with it, uh, have us to do with it. We ask that you would give us minds to understand this truth that you revealed through Paul. You would give us 
you would give us eyes to see it, minds to understand it, hearts to embrace it and love it, wills to obey whatever it is that you lead us to do, at the very least to hate our sin and run to Christ, our Savior. Help us to do that, I pray tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, like I said, I want us to think a, a, a few minutes about those last three verses in particular, at least two and a half verses. And you might wonder um, why this passage to think about the resurrection. Um, and it stems from Paul's uh, use of that phrase in verse 18 uh, that Jesus Christ is, quote, the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. I'll, we'll think about what that means but also because this passage highlights two different aspects of the accomplishment of the, of the resurrection. Uh, one of those aspects, so that there's a sort of, to restate that, there's sort of two different aspects of the accomplishment of the resurrection. One of those aspects has to do with how it affects our personal salvation. Like, my personal standing before the Lord. How does the resurrection of Jesus Christ impact my salvation? having my sins forgiven, my assurance of eternal life. That's one aspect of the accomplishment of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The other aspect of the resurrection being how he brought all of creation under um, the assurance of his victory over sin and over, of his sovereign lordship. Cosmic aspects of the resurrection, personal aspects. So those are the two um, two aspects. So as we think through the truth of the resurrection tonight, we're going to consider it from those two angles. So first, if you're taking notes, we're going to think about the fact of the resurrection, the fact of the resurrection. What does Paul mean by that phrase, firstborn from the dead? The fact of the resurrection. Secondly, the fruit of the resurrection. What did he accomplish through it? What did he accomplish for us? And what did he accomplish for all of creation? So the fact of the resurrection, the fruit of the resurrection. And as we think through this, I told you we're in this five-part series of, the, of, of, of things that Jesus accomplished through his, you know, first his incarnation and then his suffering and then his uh, death and his descent and his resurrection and then his ascent and how each of those things contributes in some way to our salvation, to our redemption, our reconciliation before God. But I don't want us to ever lose sight of the fact that all of these things together, that we're taking weeks to unpack, all of these things together constitute the one great work of salvation that Jesus did for us. Um, in, in other words, none, I mean, we can think about these things individually, but we should never think about these things in isolation from all the other things that Jesus did. Um, hence, I said last week, Jesus won the victory over sin through his death on the cross. He said, it is finished. Okay? He won the victory on the cross. And Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That's a finished work. And that is of first importance, he said but not in isolation from the rest of his work. Hence, he can say later in the same chapter, if Christ has not been raised, you're still in your sins. Um, and, and, and only, it's, you know, it's not that the cross wasn't the victory, only it alone wasn't the victory. 
Again, like I said last week, he won victory on the cross, but that victory was declared and it was published first to the dead in his descent, then to the world in his resurrection, then to the host of heaven in his ascension. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Um, So just remember, as we focus on the resurrection tonight, that this is just one part, an indispensable part, but just one part, nevertheless, of this great work of salvation that Jesus did for us, that God in Christ, He undertook and He accomplished for us. When you do that, when you don't, when you, when you focus on this aspect, but not absent-minded of the whole, what that does for you, it makes, it makes each individual aspect of it all the more beautiful, and it makes the whole of it all the more breathtaking. So just, just when you think of the one, think of all. When you think of all, think of the parts. So let's dive in and take a closer look at, at the text here in Colossians 1 and consider the fact of the resurrection. What is actually what it is actually declaring to us about Christ before we consider the fruit of the resurrection and what it declares about us through faith. All right, the fact of the resurrection. Looking at this text, Paul uses an interesting phrase. I've already noted it in the middle of that verse, verse 18. He speaks about Christ this way. And he, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And the question we want to ask is this, as we always should, what does Paul mean by this? And what does God through Paul mean by this? firstborn from the dead. At one level, there's a fairly straightforward significance to it. It simply affirms that Jesus Christ was dead, and then he was raised back to life again. Hence, and in a way that he was, in a way that he is the first to do that. Okay, he's the firstborn from the dead. He was dead, he's alive again, and in some way, he was the very first to do that. Uh, Hence, firstborn from the dead. And the meaning of firstborn in that sense, first one, it's, it's, it's that sense is governed by the preceding phrase. He is the beginning, the firstborn. So he was the first to do this. Now, immediately some, someone might object, if you thought about it for long enough, you might object that there were many others prior to Jesus' resurrection who came to life again, who were raised from the dead. Um, Think about the, the widow of Zarephath's son in 1 Kings 17. Elijah raised him back to life. Or the, the Shunammite woman's son in 2 Kings 4, whom Elisha raised back from the dead. Or the guy, y'all hold your place here. I, I usually got to read this one. In 2 Kings 13, find 2 Kings 13. This guy, he came back to life when he just touched Elisha's bones. Who, when Elisha was already dead, this is this was crazy. Second <laughs> Kings thirteen, verses twenty and twenty-one. So Elisha died, and they buried him. And it's almost like it's, you know, if you're just reading it, you're like, why did it change subject so completely all of a sudden? You'll figure out why. So Elisha died, and they buried him. Now. Bands of Moabites used to to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, like they were about to bury this guy, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave. They're like, can you imagine that? They're like, they're, um, you know, like they're burying this guy. Oh, crap. 
the Moabites are coming, and they throw this dead guy in the... And it says he was thrown into the grave. I know this is not his grave. Elisha, I'm sorry, but in comes this other guy with you. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. And he's not dead anymore. So that guy, that guy rose from the dead. Um, is just, this is prior to Jesus' resurrection. Or you go to the New Testament, you can go back to Colossians 1 if you want to. Uh, Jesus raised a number of people in his ministry. He raised a number of people back from the dead. The widow of Nain's son in, in Luke chapter 7. Jairus' daughter in Mark chapter 5. Lazarus, most famously, in John chapter 11. And also, also, before Jesus' resurrection, actually, when Jesus died on the cross, the moment he died on the cross, we read in Matthew 27, verses 50 to 53, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, I mean, zombie apocalypse, coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went out in the holy city and appeared to many. That's crazy. There are, there's others later in the New Testament, but all the others later in the New Testament will be after Jesus' resurrection. But all these that I just mentioned, Old Testament, New Testament, all these happened before Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So in what way is Jesus the firstborn from the dead? In what way is he the beginning of this thing? In what way is he the first? While there's so many that were raised before him, well... The reason is this, because his resurrection was of, was of an entirely different kind than all the others. His resurrection was not like theirs. You could put it this way. All of those who came before Jesus' resurrection, all of those, even those whom Jesus himself raised, they were merely resuscitated, and they died again. Jesus, on the other hand, when he was raised, he was raised with a resurrection body never to die again. Okay, that's the difference. As, and, 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 and so he's the firstborn from the dead in that way. His, he's the first one of this kind, and it's the forever kind, raised to life, never to die again. He's the firstborn in that way. And he's the firstborn of that kind, the first fruits of our kind, as we'll say in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus was raised with a resurrection body like the one that all, all believers will receive when he comes again. Okay. Historical evidence, both within and outside the New Testament, verify that the resurrection of Jesus really happened. Okay. It's, it, there's just no credible doubt to it. But the fact of the resurrection is more than bare fact of its occurrence. The fact includes more than simply what happened to human, according to human observation. It includes also the theological reality according to God's Word. And God, through Paul, says the fact is not only that he was raised, but he was firstborn from the dead also in a second sense. Not just the first time it happened, but also in another sense. Here's, there's a second sense a second kind of meaning to firstborn from the dead. Not just he's the first one raised in this way, but it also it testifies to his sov- the sovereign lordship of Christ over all things. Okay? Hence, Paul clarifies that meaning 
of that phrase in the next phrase. He's the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He didn't simply rise from the dead. He rose because he is Lord over death. That's the reason he rose. And to say he is Lord over death itself is to say he is Lord over all things. He's the preeminent one. In using the word firstborn to say this, he is the firstborn. Paul is drawing on particularly Psalm 89. Psalm 89. So I'm asking you to turn a couple of times. That's okay. It just helps you know your Bible better. Find Psalm 89. This is the passage that Paul is drawing on when he's using this firstborn language. Because he uses firstborn more than once in Colossians 1. He first said he's the firstborn over all creation. Now he's saying he's the firstborn from the dead. What's up with all this firstborn talk? He's drawing on Psalm 89. When you get there, I want you to notice a couple of things there. First, notice that the psalmist, the psalmist is talking about um, David and his kingly descendants. So look in verse, um, he's using David himself as the archetype of all his kingly line after him. And now look at what he says, he says in verse 20, I have found David my servant. Verse 20, I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him. So we're talking about David, Old Testament David. Now look at what he says of David in verse 27. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, if you know your Old Testament, if you know the story of the actual story of David in the Old Testament, you know that, the, that David literally, quite literally, was the, the youngest of his household. He was not, most definitely not the firstborn of all the sons in, in, in his family. He was not the firstborn of his literal family, but that's not the meaning of firstborn here, is it? I will make David the firstborn, meaning what? The highest of the kings of the earth. So it's using, in Psalm 89, he's using firstborn as a status symbol. The, the one who gets all the inheritance. The, the one who is worthy of all of it. And in that sense, going back to Colossians 1, Jesus is also the firstborn from the dead. Not only that he is the beginning of the resurrection in him of all believers, but he is Lord over all. It's just like that's all over the New Testament, that idea, not just that he is risen from the dead, but, but his resurrection verifies not only that he is Savior, but he is Lord. The, the resurrected Jesus comes to his disciples at the end of Matthew, Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28, and what are, what are his first words before the Great Commission? His first words are, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. He's Lord. Even as he's, even as, this is before the resurrection, even as he stood in the Garden of Gethsemane waiting to be arrested, he, he says in the face of those coming to arrest him, do you think, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me 12 legions of angels. This is before the resurrection. Before the resurrection as Jesus stood trial before Pilate. He told Pilate, you would have no authority over me at 
All. That's the words of Scripture. I love how emphatic it is. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you by my Father. Jesus humbled himself at the incarnation. He didn't just, what what does Paul say in Philippians? He didn't humble himself to become a, a, a human being. He humbled himself taking the form of a servant. He humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, choosing not to exercise the authority that was rightfully his in his human flesh. As we sing at at Christmas, Jesus, Lord at thy birth. You're Lord at your birth, Christ. But at his resurrection, he had moved from his state of humiliation now to his state of exaltation. Jesus was the, we learned that in 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 the, well, yeah, in that state of exaltation, he, he resumes that, that position openly as that of having all of that authority, that he might be preeminent in everything, the firstborn from the dead. So as we think about the fact of the resurrection, according to this text, we learn that in the resurrection, Jesus was the first to be raised, never to die again. And in so doing, He was beginning a new eternal reality, which we'll think about in just a minute. And in so doing, he was demonstrating his lordship and his sovereign glory over all things. That's that's what the resurrection says about him, all right? That's what the resurrection demonstrated about him. But what what did it accomplish for us who believe? We've already hinted at it, at some of it at least. Let's think about it quickly before we... Uh, come to a close, about the fruit of the resurrection. And there's no way, no way that we could exhaust all that there is to say here in just a few minutes, but we can at least make a note of it from what Paul says here in Colossians 1. And he essentially highlights two different aspects of Jesus' accomplishment, one personal and individual, the second cosmic and universal. Let's take those in turn and see them in the text. First, what did Jesus accomplish for for, for us who believe personally and individually by his resurrection from the dead. Look at the end of verse 20. Uh, if I could, you know, find actually Colossians in my Bible, it would help. Um, yeah, the end of verse 20. Making, the, he, he already talking about this one who was the firstborn from the dead. Verified that he made peace by the blood of his cross. The resurrection verified this assertion that he made peace by the blood of the cross. It demonstrates that it really was done. Sin's greatest penalty against us is what? Death. Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. Death is its due. But sin's greatest power over us, not just the penalty, but sin's greatest power over us is also death. Think about James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's not penalty language. That's power language. It is an inescapable power over us in our sin. When Jesus died and rose from the dead as our substitute, as our representative, he broke sin's penalty against us. And he overcame sin's greatest power against us, both of which is death. It's like the old hymn, uh, Rock of Ages. I don't know if you are familiar with the hymn, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. 
be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Penalty and power. As long as Jesus is dead and in the tomb, he has not yet finished paying the penalty of sin or hasn't demonstrated that to the world. And death still holds that final uh, penalty over us and that power over us, but the vindication and verification that the work was fully and finally done was that he walked out of the tomb alive again, never to die again. But notice what else Jesus, or Paul says here, that Jesus accomplished as the firstborn from the dead as the, at the first part of verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Now, that's an interesting phrase. That is cosmic and universal in its scope. All things, to reconcile to himself all things. I mean, notice how the phrase all things is defined up in verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things created through him and for him. So when he says in verse 20 to reconcile all things, he means that, all things. But what does it mean that he reconciled all things to himself? In this context, when he says reconciled, when he says it here, it doesn't mean, it can't mean contextually, it doesn't mean reconciled in the sense of brought into friendship, brought into fellowship, um, and forgiveness. He's not saying that all will be saved just because Jesus rose from the dead. Why? How do we know that? First, because clearly the Bible elsewhere says that all are not going to be saved. Secondly, though, because Paul included all in heaven and on earth and thrones or dominions or rulers, that includes Satan himself. That includes all of all Satan and demons. He's not, he's not re reconciling them in terms of bringing them into friendship and fellowship with him. I mean, he says in chapter 2, he talks about what he does with Satan and his, his demons. He says in chapter 2, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That doesn't sound like friendship and fellowship and reconciliation. So what does he mean when he says he reckon, in his resurrection he reconciled all things to himself? He means that all rebellion against him will unfailingly cease one day. And all things in heaven and on earth, even Satan himself, will one day... At his, at his return, because of his resurrection, bow to him, everyone. It's like the, the prophet Isaiah even prophesied so long ago in Isaiah 45, verses 24 and 25. Isaiah saw this vision and he said, To him, to him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. They shall come and be ashamed, all who are incensed against him. And in the Lord, all the offspring of Israel, that's fulfilled in Christ, shall be justified and shall glory. The fruit of the resurrection is simply this. Jesus won. 
And all who have put their faith in him as Savior and Lord share in his victory forevermore. Now over the penalty of sin, now over the power of sin, and one day over the very presence of sin. And let me leave us as we come to a close about this with a beautiful passage about the resurrection from N.T. Wright. And as you hear me say that word, just I'm going to caution you about N.T. Wright. He's, when he's right, he's really right. When he's wrong, he's really wrong. So um, don't read it and believe everything you read from him. On this, he's really right. So listen to what he says about the resurrection. And it has to do with how, how it ought to affect how we live and think and see the world now because Jesus is risen from the dead. He says, the resurrection of Jesus issues this surprising command, don't be afraid. Because the God who made the world is the God who raised Jesus from the dead. And he calls you now to follow him. Believing in the resurrection of Jesus is not just a matter of believing that certain things are true about the physical body of Jesus that had been crucified. These truths are vital and non-negotiable, but they point beyond themselves to the God who was responsible for them. Believing in this God means believing that it is going to be all right. And this belief is ultimately incompatible with fear. As John says in his letter, perfect love casts out fear, 1 John 4, 18. And the resurrection is the revelation of God's perfect love, God's perfect love for us as human creatures. That is why, though we may at any stage in our lives grasp the truth that God raised Jesus from the dead, it takes us all our life long to let that belief soak through and permeate the rest of our thinking, feeling, and worrying lives. So praise the Lord, yes, that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Praise the Lord, yes, that he descended to the dead and proclaimed his victory to the dead. But praise the Lord also that on the third day, he rose again from the dead for his glory and for us and for our salvation. Let's take a few minutes and, and pray together on that, on that note. And so here's how I might guide you to, to pray. As you think about the fact that of this, you know, as you think about the resurrection, which leads you to thinking about all that Jesus did for us. And as you think about all that Jesus did, it just reminds you again specifically that he didn't just die, but he rose again from the dead. You think about this great work that Jesus did for us in our salvation. When you pray together, just pray prayers of thanksgiving. Pray prayers of thanksgiving. Uh, it's in that in, in, it's in that great resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He gets to the end of 1 Corinthians 15, and this whole chapter on the resurrection, and, and Paul just explodes with, thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. Thank Him. So thank Him. And also in your prayers, pray prayers of, I'm going to get specific here, pray prayers of confession of needless worry in your life. Confess. Find areas in which you, you're prone to worry. And in light of the resurrection, which casts out all fear, confess those, those worries as needless worries. Um, and then in, in light of the confidence that you can have in Him who's raised from the dead. Y'all take a few minutes and pray in those ways.